The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. Thanks for joining us tonight. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So I hope everyone here in the United States had a great Thanksgiving week. It's Cyber Monday here in the States, one of the biggest online shopping days of the year with retailers slashing their online prices across the board and launching massive online sales to kick off the shopping season. So subsequently, this week's also one of the biggest weeks for cyber criminals who also launch all kinds of cyber attacks against consumers and retailers aimed at committing financial crimes against unsuspecting Christmas shoppers. These people are the lowest of the low, these kind of criminals. So this is a big week for cybersecurity people around the world. Everyone's sort of on alert. Everyone should remain vigilant, as I expect it to be a roller coaster ride until the end of the year. So we're going to have a great show for you uh, tonight. Uh, my special guest uh, this week is going to be Dr. Magna Shelley. And what we're going to be talking about is the talent crisis, the cybersecurity talent crisis, <clears throat> excuse me, and women in cybersecurity. So uh, we're going to be talking about the crisis across the globe and one of the root causes of that crisis, and that's the industry's inability to attract women into the cybersecurity sector. So that's a huge problem, uh, very, very big problem. We've got to solve it, so you're not going to want to miss what she has to say. Dr. Shelley is the managing director of Responsible Cyber, and she's also a cyber feminist hacker. She spends most of her time supporting chief information security officers in developing their cybersecurity strategies and roadmap plans. She consults on and reviews technical architectures, cloud migrations, and digital transformations, and she is continuously raising cybersecurity awareness and diversity at a global scale through a plethora of speaking engagements that she, that she does. So. Dr. Shelley is currently based in Singapore with the global reach through her company that is uh, 19 different locations worldwide. She speaks five languages fluently and has a PhD in telecommunications engineering with a specialization in, you guessed it, cybersecurity. She was recently nominated as the Global Leader of the Year at the Women of IT Awards in 2017 and recognized as a top 50 cybersecurity influencer around the world. Dr. Shelley will be with us for the second and third segments of the show today, so don't go anywhere after the first segment. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss what she has to say. So before this, we're going to hit some news, and I want to mention that uh, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's episode and get additional cybersecurity news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. HUB.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. And they are dedicating uh, their time to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Great site. Again, to read a recap of tonight's show and to get other cybersecurity news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. 
So uh, we're supposed to have a short and first segment of the show today. Um, I want to make as much time for Dr. Shelley as I can because she has some great things to say. So I'm going to be moving quickly uh, through the day. I know some people complain that I talk too fast, but I want to get in a lot of information today. There's, a, there's a really a lot to talk about. We don't have much time. So the New York Times was reporting that Uber has recently disclosed that hackers had stolen 57 million driver and rider accounts and... and that the company had kept the data secret, the data breach secret, from Uber customers for more than a year after paying the bad guys $100,000 ransom hush money to delete the data and not disclose their crimes against Uber and their customers or victimized Uber or their customers any further. So this one's a doozy, folks. The deal was arranged by the company's chief security officer under the watch of the former chief executive, Travis Kalanick. And according to several current and former employees who spoke on the condition of anonymity because the details were private. So the security officer, Joe Sullivan, has been fired from the company, and Mr. Kalanick was forced out in June, although he remains on Uber's board. Now, I do want to say that I know Joe Sullivan, albeit not very well. We served on some panels together, and we've had a few conversations. But I do know that he has a very good reputation in the cybersecurity community, and he is very well thought of professionally in our space. Um, so as always, I want to talk about uh, the incident as we move forward, keeping that in mind and being fair to everyone, as we always try to do here. So, the two hackers stole data about the company's riders and drivers, including phone numbers, email addresses, and names from third-party servers, and then approached Uber and demanded $100,000 to delete their copy of the data. Yeah, the employees of the firm told the Times, right? So, now I've heard that, that they only got names and email addresses and other media outlets said they have, they've got a lot more. Some say driver's license numbers and names. But the Times was reporting at the very least phone numbers, email addresses, and names at a minimum. So Uber not only acquiesced to the demands of the hackers, but then they went even further. The company tracked down the hackers and pushed them to sign non-disclosure agreements. This is according to people familiar with the matter. Get this, I mean, non-disclosure agreements. Really? I mean... For what? I mean, these are criminals. I mean, they're possibly organized crime members. Who asks a criminal to sign an NDA? If they don't delete the data and use it to commit more fraud after they sign it, what are you going to do, sue them? <laughs> Dear Mr. Criminal, since you didn't keep your word about not committing any more federal crimes against me, I'm going to have to sue you now in federal court, whoever you are. I mean, I, know, I like to know how this went down. I mean, did the criminals use their real names? Did they even sign the NDAs? Did they have legal review? <laughs> I mean, I want to know more about this. It sounds ridiculous to me. I understand when small companies are faced with ransomware attacks and have no choice but to pay the bad guys to get the key back to unlock their own data or they go out of business, right? I get that. And I might not like it, but I understand it. And I, and I don't condone it by any means, by the way. But I, I, I get the thought process here. I mean, you're ruining people's lives, right? Um, and you can get that life back for a very short, small payment in some, in some respect. But this isn't ransomware, people. These criminals, they actually already have Uber's customer data. This is a totally different scenario, and it's actually much worse. So I'd like to know the details of what happened around these NDAs. I found this probably one of the most interesting pieces of the story. To further conceal the damage, Uber executives also made it appear as if the payout had been part of a bug bounty. This is a common practice among technology companies in which they pay hackers to test their systems and find problems. 
Now, this is becoming more commonplace in that companies hire hackers to pen test their networks and report back to them any vulnerabilities that they find so that they can mitigate the risk of being hacked by people with ill intentions, as if there's a person who hacks you that has good intentions. <laughs> I mean, you can't help but find the irony here in, in what they did. Uber hid the details of the attack until just recently. The ride-hailing company said it had discovered the breach as part of a board investigation into Uber's business practices. But the hailing of the breach underscores the extent to which Uber executives were willing to go to protect the $70 billion ride-hailing ride giant's reputation and business, even at the potential cost of breaking users' trust and, perhaps more important, state and federal laws. The Times is reporting that the New York Attorney General's office said on Tuesday that it had opened an investigation into the matter, but the Washington Post is going even further, saying that the Attorneys Generals of Massachusetts, Illinois, Connecticut, New York, and Missouri have all launched investigations into this latest egregious lack of data security, as well as some of Uber executives' decisions to not report the breach, and instead pay off the hackers and try to keep them silent. In addition... The Post is also reporting that the FTC has also announced that they are investigating the incident, and at least three lawsuits are in the works. Those lawsuits have been filed in California and Oregon, and all three are seeking class action suits against the company. So I think this is just the beginning of what you're going to see here over the next few weeks. So this on top of the fact that the Wall Street Journal has previously reported that Uber is already under criminal investigation by the FBI for Uber's use of software to track and potentially influence drivers for its competitor app, Lyft. The software program, supposedly nicknamed Hell by Uber workers, was reportedly used to monitor the phones and movements of drivers who worked for both Uber and Lyft, as well as the cost and number of rides they provided. In fact, according to Mashable.com, Uber law enforcement authorities currently have at least five separate criminal investigations into Uber and its executives. In some recently disclosed reports, authorities are looking into whether Uber violated price transparency laws and also investigating how the company may have stolen documents from Alphabet's self-driving technology division. I mean, what the hell's going on over there? I mean, you got to wonder what SoftBank is thinking about all this right now. It kinda, this kind of seems like a company out of control. Dara Kazrashahi. That's my best attempt at that name, and I apologize if I mispronounce it in any way. He was chosen to be the chief executive of Uber in late August, and he said he had only recently learned of the breach. So Dara wrote in a company blog post that none of this should have happened, and I will not make excuses for it. While I can't erase the past, I can commit on, on behalf of every Uber employee that we will learn from our mistakes. We are changing the way we do business, putting integrity at the core of every decision we make, and working hard to earn the trust of our customers. A spokesperson for Mr. Kalanick declined to comment, but according to Engadget.com, Wall Street Journal sources have learned that the CEO didn't know about the breach when he started as CEO and was informed about the data breach two weeks after he took the reins on September 5th or more than two months before informing the public. So Mr. Kalanick, the former CEO, doesn't have anything to say right now, but uh, uh, apparently Mr. Kazrashahi didn't know what he was getting into when he took the reins on September 5th. I mean, imagine his surprise when he was told about this. Insiders say that there were reasons for the delay, but it still meant out leaving many people out of the loop. So Uber told its would-be investor SoftBank about the breach roughly three weeks before the Wall Street Journal scoop, but it still didn't know just how many people were at risk. 
I mean, how would you like to be this guy right now? You're, you're, you're signing legal agreements with criminals, but you're not telling your incoming CEO what's going on until he's already signed up into the hot seat. Ugh. The revelation of the breach and the way it was kept quiet renewed questions about the tenure of Mr. Kalanick, who has faced criticism over his management style and practices after Uber came under scrutiny for its workplace culture this year. The New York Times also reported on a secret program called Grayball that had been undertaken by Mr. Kalanick's watch, in which Uber staff members surveilled, surveilled, it says, law enforcement officials in order to evade them. Since his exit as chief executive has been sued by at least one of Uber's earlier investors for fraud. Now, I got a problem with this. I mean, this Grayball program, the New York Times has previously reported on this. Uber has for years engaged in a worldwide program to deceive authorities in markets where its low-cost ride-hailing service was resisted by law enforcement or in some instances had actually been banned, was illegal. The program of the tool called Grayball uses data collected from the Uber app and other techniques to identify and circumvent officials who are trying to clamp down on Uber. Uber use these methods to evade the authorities in cities like Boston and Las Vegas and in countries like Australia, China, and South Korea. Grayball was part of a program called VTOS, short for Violation of Terms of Service, which Uber created to root out people it thought were using or targeting its services improperly. The program, including Grayball, began as early as 2014 and remains in use today, predominantly outside the United States, and apparently it's all approved by Uber's legal team. Now, Grayball and the VTOS program were described to the New York Times by four current and former Uber employees who also provided documents. The first book on the condition of anonymity because of the tools and their use of these tools and how it's confidential and because of fear of retaliation by Uber and such. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, Uber execs over there seem like just a bunch of fun-loving, trustworthy bunch of lads. Uber's use of Grayball was recorded on video in late 2014 when Eric England, a code enforcement inspector in Portland, Oregon, tried to hail an Uber car downtown in a sting operation against the company. And at the time, Uber had just started uh, its ride-hailing service in Portland without seeking permission from the city, which later declared the service illegal. So to build a case against the company, they launched an investigation, and officers like Mr. England posed as riders, opening the Uber app to hail a car and watching as miniature vehicles on the street made their way toward the potential fares. But unknown to Mr. England and other authorities, some of the digital cars that they saw on the app did not really represent actual vehicles. And the Uber drivers they were able to hail also quickly canceled. So that was because Uber had tagged Mr. England and his colleagues, essentially grayballing them as city officials, based on the data collected from the app and in many other ways as well. The company then served up a fake version of the app populated with ghost cars to evade capture. So at a time when Uber was already under scrutiny for its boundary-pushing workplace culture involving a host of sexual harassment accusations, its use of the Grayball tool underscores the lengths to which the company will go to dominate its market. Uber has long flouted laws and regulations to gain an edge against entrenched transportation providers, a modus operandi that has helped propel the company into more than 70 countries and to a valuation close to $70 billion. Yet using its apps to identify and sidestep authorities where regulars said Uber was breaking the law goes further towards skirting ethical lines and potentially legal ones. Some at Uber who knew of the VTOS program and how the Grayball tool was being used were troubled by it. 
Some employees were clearly uncomfortable with God knows what was really going on over there. So I'm going to have to cut it right there because uh, I want to take time to uh, talk to Dr. Shelley for the rest of the uh, episode. But we're going to have more next week on this, this Uber situation. There's a lot to talk about here, and I have, I have a lot to, uh, to discuss. So we're going to revisit this again next week. Um, well, right now, we're going we're gonna to take a quick commercial break. Don't forget that you can go to online to Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's episode and get additional cybersecurity news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. We'll be right back with Dr. Magda Shelley to talk about the talent crisis and why there aren't more women in cybersecurity. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity evangelist, self-proclaimed cybersecurity feminist, and managing director of Responsible Cyber, a company that provides cybersecurity training and consultancy services around the world, straight from Singapore, Magda Shelley. Welcome to the show, Magda. Hi, George. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm very happy to be here online on the show today. Great, great. And we're happy to have you. We're excited to hear some of your views. I've heard you speak uh, many times before, and you have a lot of very, very interesting things to say. One of them is about uh, you being a cybersecurity feminist. And, you know, you and I have talked about that a little bit, and I think you're excited to kind of share your views on that. Could you tell us what you mean when you say that you're a cybersecurity feminist? is actually a term that raises a lot of curiosity from all my audience in general and uh, people who I meet in meetings as it's part of my business card as well. So cyber feminist for me is basically encouraging women into cybersecurity and making sure that we raise equal opportunities uh, for 
young women who want to start a career in the field or who or women who are already within the industry and want to let's say go beyond just being an employee maybe taking some more leadership positions um, the term of course comes from cyber security and feminism however however again i want to make sure that my point about it that is really to encourage more diversity and inclusion in the industry all right that's great that's great so you know first off we're going to be talking about women in cybersecurity today and i want to get your views on what the current situation is around the globe with women in, in cybersecurity so can you summarize the situation for us as you see it Absolutely, George. So today, actually, the situation is quite sad because we are still having 11% of women in the field. That means that since several years, the situation did not change and not did not evolve in terms of numbers. So, so when you say 11%, just to, you say there's only out of the cybersecurity field, only 11% of cybersecurity professionals are women. So that means that when a, a professional woman in cybersecurity enters a meeting, most of the time she is the only one uh, with um, the attendees, which might sometimes and in certain situations create a wrong perception. Um, we're going to talk about that, I guess, later. However, yeah, again, coming back to the situation today, any uh, and most of the leadership position and all the position in cybersecurity are male-dominated positions. And currently, even in the young uh, career steps of professionals in the sector, we do not see yet the diversity that we would like to have, at least that I would like to have, and I guess all the people that are encouraging, again, having this inclusion within the cybersecurity uh, community. So this, does this include when we say 11%, does that number get worse as we go up the cybersecurity chain, as we get higher uh, in the, uh, up the corporate ladder, so to speak? Does that number get worse or does it get better? Actually, the number gets worse when we are talking about the higher position. Uh, looking at the statistic, uh, today we have a lot of women in a low or medium level positions in cybersecurity. They tend to stay in positions like analysts or other similar positions, and they do not evolve in their careers. And from the research, many of the challenges around this is related to perceptions and assumptions. Let's say, and let's take an example of um, an incident management team where actually the roles or the position might require an availability which is 24 by 7 on rotation basis. This is actually what I heard from several colleagues, um, kind of uh, obstacles for women from their perspective to take on this kind of roles in the cybersecurity field. So basically, because the role require a presence that might be beyond the nine to six or nine to five hours, there is a perception that this will be too difficult for a woman or not actually very compatible with her lifestyle or with her demand. And the, the problem here is that no one actually asks 
women, what do they really think about it? I mean, again, it's about giving the opportunity for a woman to prove herself and do whatever she is good at. And I'm saying that on purpose, what she is good at in terms of technical or functional skills in the cybersecurity field. So we cannot assume based of assumption, based on traditional way of living, what a woman would be able to do and what she would not be able to do. And based on this assumption, we keep her in certain roles because we think that that might be just uh, comfortable for her. I think um, this main challenge is one of the uh, of the things that anyone should work on is unconscious biases and making sure that anyone is not about only women but give the chance for anyone to evolve in its in his career on her career and especially in my case i'm fighting for these opportunities uh, related to women so in your opinion just thinking about this what's the cause what's the root cause of the current situation like and and so how do we you know because i think in, from a you know, from my viewpoint, I think we have a lot of trouble defining, you know, what the root cause is. I hear a lot of conversations and, and, and meetings about, okay, what's, you know, let, let's, let's break this down. You know, what's, what's, what's the real problem here? Let's try to address it. And there's a whole, everyone's taking a different approach. But first, let's define the problem. We know what the situation is, as you just described it to us. What, what, what is the cause of the current situation? So... Currently, we have, like you said, a lot of views and a lot of opinions about the, the topic. When I post something on social media, a lot of time I get comments and feedbacks uh, clearly mention that we do not have women in cybersecurity because women decide not to do cybersecurity. And this is something that I do not agree with at all. So answering a question like this, by a simple answer would solve the most the one of the biggest problem in the world which is a lack of diversity in not only cybersecurity but in general so the answer the, on for this question is not as simple as that but let's come back first of all when and how the interest in a field starts in any teenager or any kid from the beginning so let's start from a baby. A baby is raised today in a way where, for example, blue color will be for a boy and pink will be for a girl. Then we are supposed to give dolls for the girl and cars for the boys. And there have been a lot of experiments showing that actually people, by doing this, creates different already biases and different skills for the kids. What that means that basically a boy that is actually a kid, like let's say less than a year, will be playing with the cars, not because he's interested too, but just because he has been given the cars and not the dolls. There was a very interesting experiment that happened where actually uh, kids have been changed clothes like you couldn't say if the baby was a girl or was a boy and P you they both brought people different people to give them toys and you saw that 
We all have these unconscious biases and they tended to give the cars to the baby who looked like a boy and give the dolls to the baby who looked like a girl. And then they found out that actually it was the opposite. But also what they found out is that the curiosity of the babies was the same. No matter if they were playing with cars or dolls, they were still interested to discover what was that and play with it. So my first point here would be, we need to think about how today and before we have been raising our kids. Are we already trying to raise with them, our kids again, some unconscious bias that they are supposed to do that and they're not supposed to do this? So that is my first point. Then the second point, which comes actually at around 14, 15 years. So the kids are a little bit older and they're teenager, teenagers. And what happened is actually is, of course, we have certain f- physiological and uh, psychological differences between boys and girls. So what happens is that in the high school around 16 and 15, 15 and 16 years, the girls tend to lose confidence. And because of that, what happens is that they lose also kind of interest in everything that's related to a mathematical uh, subjects, for example. Uh, and this is clearly due to the fact that if sometimes uh, clearly a subject of someone who is not yet completely confident doesn't succeed, for example, to an exercise, he will lose even more confidence. So the girls tend to actually go less towards mathematical subjects because they lose confidence in their own capabilities. So, and this is not the case for the boys because they do not grow and evolve in the same way and they do not develop skills exactly in the same way as girls. So my second point here, which is very important, is that we need to understand the root causes of this. And not only, for example, if we have in the high school the choice for girls and boys to go into a scientific subject, just to let it be like it, like it is by nature, but maybe try to actually see and discover the potential of the kids and try to encourage them to do that by themselves, taking in consideration their lack of confidence ex- extremely, especially and extremely at that point of time where they are developing their personalities, where their skills are still very um, uncertain. They don't know at that point of, the, of their lives what they would like to do, how do they would like to do it, and they still lack a lot of confidence in themselves. So my second point would be, again, making sure that within the teenager phase or stage of the life of our kids, we take the time to raise their potential. We take the time to make sure that they discover their opportunities and the possibilities that are around them. And then the next point will be coming to, of course, choosing choosing the right college, choosing the right um, diploma that, you know, after the high school, 
All right, so that actually brings me into something here because I got to tell you, the, what you just went over right now is not what's being discussed <laughs> as part of the, uh, you know, cause of the current situation and, and, you know, how do we go about defining the problem? Um, and maybe that's why it's not getting fixed. <laughs> maybe we need people like you in the conversation uh, to help us uh, move forward here. What The question I have is, before we get into a tactical level of what people can do today, decision makers can do today and tactically to start getting women into cybersecurity. I just want to, I just want to round out our discussion in terms of what institutional and societal changes need to be made for us to actually start attracting women into cybersecurity now. So first societal uh, changes, as I mentioned, it comes from schools uh, as well as from families, making sure that we give the different options to the kids. That's very important. Then, of course, inclusion comes as well from stopping um, this kind of me- mediatization that women do not want to go into cybersecurity. Because whenever we see this kind of comments, it, of course, doesn't encourage young women to go into cybersecurity. If you have, for example, a group of um, information security professionals and they are all male and there is one uh, young lady that will be young uh, just graduated and will come over and wants to discuss something and she doesn't feel that inclusion then of course that will not encourage her to continue her career in cybersecurity. so we need to include people um, no matter of their gender no matter of their anything else apart their skills and capabilities to provide what is required to be a good cybersecurity professional that is from the societal part of part then if we're talking about institutions i mentioned schools but institution is coming from different point of view you have the schools when it comes from the early stage but then you have companies and you have corporates where actually they can make a huge difference in the way of the how they are recruiting professionals one thing that i have found also with our researchers and in general um, from feedback from professionals as well is that unfortunately a lot of people have this unconscious bias that a woman if she enters a meeting again with cybersecurity professionals she's pro- probably the salesperson and not the technical person. A woman will not be that technical person. That's the wrong perception that we all have. And I also will actually say something that I assume assume what I'm saying completely is that it is an unconscious bias because it's based on the numbers as well. We're talking about 11% only on of women in cybersecurity. So People, no matter male or female, they assume that the woman that is in the, in, in the meeting room is not actually technical. So the one time or the few times that the woman will be technical and she will get questions like, oh, are you alone? Or uh, where is your technical, um, you know, uh, your technical professional, technical cybersecurity expert? This also as well does not encourage inclusion. So one thing that's important from the institution point of view and from corporate is to make sure that they understand this challenge and they really make the right way to change it, starting from the recruitment, making sure that they're actually not biased within the recruitment already. 
By that, I mean if they receive CVs of women and men, they do not suppose unconsciously or consciously that the woman is not good technically enough. Then the second thing is to make sure that if the number of women in a cybersecurity team is low, that they do something about the inclusion. Because I had some uh, clear practical example where the woman will go on lunch by herself because no one else would actually want to go with her. The team will go all together and she will find herself alone. Well, I want to talk more about this specifically in the, in the next segment. We're bumping up against a break right now. So we have to go to commercial break, but we got a lot more to talk about on this show. And I have a lot of questions for you, especially tactically what we can do today uh, to make sure that we don't have any of these predisposition biases and these you know unconscious biases when we start defining roles and responsibilities in a meeting before we even know who's who. And so uh, we're going to get into that discussion, but we've got to go to break. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan, set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning in to Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, Managing Director of Responsible Cyber, Magda Shelley. And Dr. Shelley, we were talking before the break about what we can do from a strategic standpoint in terms of attracting more women into cybersecurity. And you and I were talking to, uh, during the break. And, and you know, I got to tell you, man, when I'm sitting in these conversations and and we're talking about how, how, to, how to achieve this and, you know, defining the problem and then, you know, outlining the solutions. These types of conversations aren't happening. What you just described to us, uh, to our listeners earlier, was not the discussion that we're having. And I think that's the problem. So what's the main message to 
men in the cybersecurity field right now? What can they do to be part of the solution and not be part of the problem? How, how should men be involved here? Um, very good question, George. I think there's a very important uh, point to get men involved in this whole uh, approach and in the whole process of inclusion and diversity within the cybersecurity, especially because this is our area of expertise. Um, how they can do that is very simple um, and very complex at the same time. But let's start with a simple thing. Uh, when it comes to recruitment or trying to choose the team members, it's very important to bring on, um, let's say, the the willingness or just the fact that they encourage to have more women in their own teams. And that comes from any team. It can be a group, a team of analysts. It can be a security operational center. It can be for a managing position or a leadership position. But it needs to be said, I want to recruit a professional who is really skilled for what I am searching for. I'm searching for, like I call, like to call them for a cybersecurity hero, no matter of the gender, but I will hire a woman if she has the right skill, as well as I will do the same for a man. But I am encouraging both to apply because I'm giving them equal opportunities. I think we need to say it. When we say it and we promote it, that opens a lot more uh, courage. Again, gives more courage to women to apply and uh, have more chances to get the job. There is one point that is here very related as well is, and it's very well known, a woman will not apply on a position that, for example, she finds uh, that she's missing one skill. But a man will apply even if he's missing four. <laughs> It's actually proven. There's been some researchers in the field. And it's quite, it might be funny, but at the same time, it's, yeah, okay. Uh, that means that we need to help all together to change this. First of all, um, I encourage also men to mentor young women in the field. It's very important. Uh, women tend, again, to have this lack of confidence. So mentoring is a very important approach. See, I, I think that's important in terms of helping women climb the, the, the corporate ladder and, and, and advance in the cybersecurity industry. But when I go and I, and I think, you know, you know, we're recruiting colleges and, and, you know, talk to young people um, and try to encourage women to look into cybersecurity and, 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 and all the different domains that are there and all the different opportunities. It's tough. I got to tell you, it's tough. I mean, I, I, you know, if I go walk into a computer science class right now, there's no women to encourage. I mean, it, it, not no, not none. It's a little dramatic, right? But there is very little. There's not too many women in there. So, I mean, do we have to go, you know, deeper? Do we have to go into the high schools before oh, yeah. they even get to college? And, and what are your thoughts on that? And, and can that be a major part of the solution here in terms of, you know, encouraging them, you know, outlining here, educating them on the opportunities. This, this is what the opportunities are out there. They're, there's, they're plentiful. And you can, uh, you can seize the moment here if you want to. And here's, you know, what it's all about. I mean, is that uh, something that you think would be helpful? Oh, absolutely, George. Definitely starting, as I mentioned before, in schools and high schools, 
is very important. But let me tell you something. The problem is actually that uh, when you go to high school and you try to see um, schools or teachers bringing on professionals to share their own experience, if you try to see in leadership positions and around cybersecurity position, you will actually find that the numbers show and bring on more men going and bringing their experience to high school teenagers, showing them that they have done this and they are doing that. What that means is that unconsciously teenagers think that a job in cybersecurity is meant only for men and not for women. So one of the thing, the approach that I have been encouraging a lot uh, within the schools around the world is to make sure that Whenever we're bringing any role models to the school, we have the diversity. We have different role models. So we open the mind of the kids and of the teenagers into different opportunities and possibilities for them. We build more their um, horizons. We, they might think, oh, there is a different way to do it. There is a different path and not only one especially again at that point of their lives where they're still building themselves. So this is one, bringing diversified role models when it comes to leadership and cybersecurity in particular. It definitely help make a change. The second one, which actually as well we need to change, is the fact that sometimes, and unfortunately it is something that happens, cybersecurity is perceived as boring, Especially, <laughs> that's right. No, it's right. It is. I know, and uh, that's of course when it comes to young people. They say, "Why should I do something that's boring?" So it's all about bringing that positive energy when it comes to, for example, a talk with anyone who's involved or trying to get to know the field, uh, bringing not only that positive energy but also the passion that made you or or the person who's talking taking that as your career and the thing that you want to do every day. If you're not passionate about that and you talk about it, then the other person or the other kid or the other young lady or man, no matter who is in front of you, will not feel the, the passion about or will not be even curious to go and discover more. So I think it's a work that comes from, again, Having a balance in terms of role models that we are showing to our kids in terms of who they can project themselves in, very important point. And then the second one is to bringing a different perception to cybersecurity, um, trying to change the way that we talk about it, not bringing, uh, you know, a completely non-adaptive sometimes presentations uh, to young uh, professionals or even teenagers. Uh, I I totally get that. I mean, when I think, you know, and I speak at the colleges and I see the reactions that I get a lot of times, I think young folks actually think about computer science when they think about cybersecurity and just the word science alone. I mean, I hated the word science when I was younger. I mean, anything that had science in it, I don't want to even you know, listen to it. I just didn't, was not interested in, 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 in the least, but especially it seems in this case, the computer science field is completely ignored by the female population almost. I mean, it has very, very low levels of enrollment 
Um, and I, I, and not that computer science is the only um, degree that you need to do cybersecurity. I mean, there's a whole host of different you know, domains in cybersecurity, uh, whether it's intelligence, investigations, incident response, DLPS, STLC, whatever. There's a whole bunch of different skills that we need in cybersecurity. And I think they're not aware of that either. So, I mean, how, how far down do we have to go? I mean, do we have to go down to the elementary schools and the middle schools to start educating children about the opportunities in cybersecurity and what cybersecurity is about? And to your point, to redefine it, not redefine it, but make sure we define it properly uh, to everyone, to educate everyone on um, what the opportunities are and the, and the talent crisis. It's huge. How far down we got to go? You know, I have friends who are actually teaching their girls to code at the age of 8 and 10. And it's amazing because they discover different way of dealing with a computer, different way of using a computer, and they discover a different part of computer science as well. Um, so <laughs> to answer your question, should we go so far? Yes, why not? Why not giving the opportunity for kids to discover something that is different and bringing something that you mentioned is very important, the fact that they know what it is about. Because cybersecurity perception today is very different from the reality. People tend not to even know what means cybersecurity. I won't say that a lot of people, even IT people, when I say cybersecurity, they mean, oh, we have a firewall. So imagine general public or even younger people. They do not have any idea about this. So in order to make a difference, we need to make sure that they understand that cybersecurity is not only hacking, is not only code, is not only uh, breaking a computer, is much more to it. And to make sure that that happens, it needs to happen progressively from the very young age. First of all, that they understand the basics, basic concepts. Cybersecurity is coming from the fact that we're protecting. What are we protecting and why we're protecting? And today our world is becoming completely digital. So our kids are born in a digital connected world. So they shouldn't be uh, unfamiliar with this concept. That should be part of their daily life, like we close the door of our houses with a key. Then the second part, again, is making sure that whenever they grow and they have the choice to discover what's behind the word. We push them to do the, to do so, and that's what. By that, I mean if we're talking about cybersecurity, and the kid showed an interest, why not making sure that the kid has an overview of what cybersecurity is about? And again, I come back to the different like you mentioned, incident response, what that means, what is uh, risk management, why companies do have that, uh, do we have, why do we have secure coding, etc. So give the opportunity for any young uh, individual, starting from the kids to young professionals to discover and uh, be curious about what it is. So you said something recently that was very interesting in one of the talks that you were given. And I was watching uh, and listening to you on the Internet. And you said something like, I want you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think of a hacker. And, she, and you, said, you said, basically, I can guarantee that everybody in this room just closed their eyes and thought about a male between the ages of 50 to 25 with a black hoodie on sitting at a computer 
right? Everyone, you, have to, you know, when you think about a hacker, something along those lines, right? But no one, you said, thought of a hacker that looked like this. And you just, po- you know, you posted a picture of a female. And um, that was really interesting. That was really interesting because I kind of feel that whether you're male or female in the audience, that everyone thought the same thing. I mean, I don't think anything, it's different for females either. Do you? I mean, I think they sort of have a lot of the same thought processes. Am I wrong in, in that? I mean, how, how can females help here? Are, are, are females part of the solution or yeah. how does that work? It's actually a very good example, but it's, <laughs> it's our unconscious biases and they are there. And no matter if it's a male or a female, they close their eyes and think about that in the first place. Uh, uh, to right. question, are female part of the solution? Of course they are. Um, and I would say they are ex- extremely important part of the solution uh, because they need to support each other. And I give you an example. If you have a female uh, colleague within your team, you help each other because you guys, and I'm talking in general, you help each other very well. And I think women in general need to work about around that much more. And this is something that in general is also a little bit, uh, I would say, um, to use a nice word, I wouldn't say taboo because that's too much, uh, but sometimes women lack this encouragement between themselves and we need to say it. So it's also a work, again, coming from the male perspective, but also from the woman perspective as well. If Again, if I have a team and in my team I have young women and young men, I will try to make sure that all of them, both of them, no matter of the gender, can actually evolve and increase their potential. They will help as well the female climb the ladder of the corporate world. And this is something that is a main key to success, to bring the inclusion. Because if you have, for example, uh, a successful woman that is also working on unconscious bias or she doesn't want the inclusion, then we're not solving the problem as well. So it's really a collaboration between all genders, but just making sure that we realize that there is a problem and what we want to achieve is basically equal opportunities, but the equal opportunities cannot be there if we do not encourage the curiosity and the discovery of what the young professionals or even coming back to the kids can do in cybersecurity and what it is about. So before we got into into this in terms of attracting people into cybersecurity, you were getting on to something there in terms of women who are already in cybersecurity and how we can help them um, move up the chain, so to speak, to get into more senior positions uh, and more you know critical decision-making positions uh, than the percentage that we have today. And you mentioned before earlier that it was also, as, as they go up the ladder, it actually goes down, that the percentage actually goes down of women in senior positions in cybersecurity. How do we tackle that? Not, you know, getting, and once they're in, that's fine. But once they're in, like, how do we, how do we, you know, work to move women into more senior positions in, in cybersecurity and prepare them for these, for these very, very serious uh, responsibilities? I think this, uh, this point is very related to the culture of the company and the management. It needs to be a top-down approach, like in cybersecurity. You need to encourage that inclusion ev- evolution um, in the career of all your team members. So it's the management role 
to actually have a clear overview of how that ha- how it's happening within the team. If a woman is there for too long, she should evolve in her career and move to the next role and not just be there forever. That's the 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 realistic way to do that. However, again, coming back from the practical point of view, um, I think it's more about as well realizing the unconscious biases. Because why this happens is because we assume things about women. And in order to make sure that women can evolve to leadership position, we need to stop assuming things about women and give them the choice and ask them, clearly ask them questions. Are you able to perform this task? And not assume that she cannot perform this task task because she is not comfortable to work until 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or whatever. And this, I think, will help a lot. So it comes from the management, again, with the uh, will to make a change, with the will to actually increase diversity at every level of the corporate world and not only on the like you know at the certain level which is the junior right so we're running out of time and and we gotta go and i'm i could talk about this for much longer i really appreciate you coming on the show and it was some very very interesting thoughts i'd love to have you back on the show again thank you very much george i'm very happy that i had the opportunity to share with you this view as you know this topic is very important for me and i'm trying to encourage more and more young women to join cybersecurity and uh to make a change in the world and secure our interconnected ecosystem (laughs) that's right that's right that's right well thank you very much for coming on I'll, i'll talk to you soon i'll reach out to you very soon Uh, and we'll follow up on some of our conversation. Um, That's all we have time for today, everyone. Thanks for joining in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.